styles are useful, items of purpose to dry the dishes or to cover us while we sleep. Textiles are beautiful. We wear them to express who we are and how we feel. These are the ways we think of cloth and often we forget that textiles are objects of enormous power. We use them to express our core beliefs, our deepest emotions about our country, our political and religious allegiances, to tell people where and what we belong to, whether it's our football club, our clan or tribe, our country, or just our school and golf club. I think there is something about cloth that we, in our relationships, that we as communities try to draw ourselves together because there is strength in coming together. And so much of that is about shared narrative. It's about closeness to others. And cloth, I think, in its very formation of, of warp and weft, of weaving, it is about binding things together, about a closeness, and about, as you stand back and you get perspective, you then understand how what seemed like small knots, what seemed like, you know, tiny patterns become something which, with perspective, takes shape in the way that communities do. If we understand our, our part as a single individual within them. And that, I think, is something which makes cloth incredibly powerful. But then also the understanding that binding all of that materiality together, that texture, pull, pulling it all together, is its strength, but it is also its vulnerability. A single knot unravelling could lead to the unravelling of the whole piece. And that in a way, is a perfect analogue for family, isn't it? That's Gus Casely Hayford, director of the new Victoria and Albert Museum East in London, and former director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art in Washington, DC. Welcome to the second series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews, a hand weaver, interested in how all kinds of cloth speaks to us and the impact it has on our lives. Each of the episodes in this series takes an emotion and unravels how we express that in textiles. This episode is about a feeling of belonging and it looks at how we express our identity through textiles. Our lives are awash with fabric of meaning, to such an extent that I think we've ceased to see the fabric and almost automatically see beyond it to the meaning presented to us. Do we see a piece of cloth when we look at our national flags? Probably not. Instead, we think about what it means to be a citizen of our country. Some of the most powerful and dignified images we see are of our dead coming home, draped in our national flag. We invest some of our deepest emotional experiences in cloth. Inquiring into how we express our sense of belonging through cloth 
is a lifetime's work and not that of a single podcast or even a series. Imagine the rabbit holes we could go down. Medieval battlefields, clan tartans, gang warfare, football clubs, religious dress and emblems. But I decided we should set off instead for a small, joyful corner of this vast topic of belonging. Ghana, in the coastal province of this West African nation, amongst the Fanti people. These people were some of the earliest in West Africa to have contact with European traders, for better or for worse, and sometimes it was for a great deal worse. It would have been in the 15th and 16th centuries that British and Dutch ships began to arrive regularly on this coast. I guess one of the first things that that the people of West Africa would have seen of Europeans when they arrived was their, their ships coming over the horizon and on the masts of their ships would have been flags. Um, you know, flags were the ways in which, I guess, European nations would have defined themselves and you know that that would have been the first thing that West Africans would have seen of them and when Europeans began to um, make their presence permanent on the West African coast they built forts and they built um, trading encampments and they would have small armies that they would have to protect their encampments and um, they would fly their flags from the mast, but they would also kind of seek to make alliances with local people to help to defend, defend their trading interests. And particularly in the Fanti region, on, on the southern coast of Ghana, that these trading inf- interests became enormously profitable because of gold that was being transported off of the coast that was coming from the Asante interior. And so they built a large number of castles and fortified encampments along the coast. And they forged alliances with the local people who they formed into military companies. And these military companies, they were allies of the British, but they were also independent. These Fante military companies collectively became called Asafo companies from the local words sa, meaning war, and fo, meaning people. And the Asafo became a formidable force. And one of the ways in which they would rally their their troops, their young, was around this amazing tradition of flags and flag making. And when a young person reached the age of maturity that they might commission a flag and the flag would be a beautiful thing that would tell stories that in some way reflected the the lives or the interests of that family. They may be mottos, they might be passages from history, they might be depictions of things that people were trying to evoke the spirit of, you know, even that could even be machinery. So in the early 20th century, that there are lots of flags with 
with biplanes on them. There are flags with bridges on them, but they're so more often they're, they're flags with mythical beasts or, or, or trees or, you know, things that from nature and that in some way their depiction evoked something that was special. And that these flags could be flown um, on special occasions. In their earliest manifestation, they would have been taken um, to war but more often than not, that they were symbols of families and of individuals and ways of binding people to these very special histories and of pulling and drawing communities together. For hundreds of years, the Asafo companies have existed and they survive today. There are around 15 to 20 companies in different towns on the coast. Each one has their own musicians and their own colours. In the old days, the flags formed a picture expressing a story. And then in the corner, a British or sometimes a Dutch national flag. Modern Asafo flags tend to have Ghana's own national flag in the corner instead. Their flags are quite different from what we imagine when we think of national or military flags. They have a joy and a fresh artistry to them which make them things of great beauty. And over the years, they have become much more than flags of war. Today, they're principally used in festivals. They could be used in times of peace and that they were symbols of family continuity of the stories and histories of particular communities in these environments, um, that life could be incredibly fragile, short for some people, and challenging for many, and that um, the ways in which people could celebrate continuity, history, was through the sorts of things that simultaneously endured across generations, but also demonstrated a kind of fragility which became metaphorical. It, you know, that you could see in a flag, this was an old flag that had been repaired and loved over generations, that had been flown on many occasions and become sort of, you know, ragged and, and you could see the threads had been um, torn over many times of, of being flown. But it was that relationship between permanence and fragility that made them special because, you know, that was like the continuity of family. And on a special occasions that flags might be flown, but you would also have a flag dancer, someone who would move between, between groups, you know, or at special festivals, and they would, they would dance with the flag using it as a way of drawing people together, uniting them, binding them around these glorious symbols of, of, of continuity. And in those occasions that it could be that these incredibly fragile, beautiful things that they would, you could see them rippling and tensing in the wind and tiny fragments of them flying out across these crowds to, to, dust the the cheeks and the foreheads and the and the upper shoulders of the crowds with with just tiny little um, desiccated um, fragments of these beautiful 
flags. And it was a sense, in a way, of being touched, anointed by the history of this itself, of history itself being palpable in these beautiful objects, of, of them representing something that was material, but also something that was something more, which was about continuity and and heritage. The Sappho flags are a pliquet, and they have a language all of their own. They tell stories and express proverbs and mottos. They're made by men, and originally they were made in secret and at night. These flags are made by men, uh, traditionally, and um, I think that is about their connection to war, but um, traditionally in, in, in Africa, as I guess in, in many parts of the world, that um, many crafts are very highly gendered, that there are parts of Africa in which you know, most of the potters are women, um, many of the people who work in textiles may well be men, you know, that this is something which changes from territory to territory. But in southern Ghana, or the Gold Coast, in the period in which these flags really kind of um, come into being, they were part of a tradition of war-making or of, of defence of territory. And one of the ways in which a young flag maker would acquire their skills wasn't just about learning to sew, it was also about learning particular kinds of, of spiritual ways of enhancing the power of the flag. And those were traditions that were held within particular fraternities, particular male, male groups. And so the, the Asafo flag tradition, both the making and the flying of them became something which was very male. But one of the ironies is that in this part of Ghana, that the way in which you would inherit things, the way in which you would inherit your, your bloodline, um, your property, was actually through the maternal line. And that is, again, that sort of connection of bringing together a kind of, 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 of a dualism, of bringing together seemingly opposing forces and uniting them to create a particular kind of, of power, which is something that is very much part of Southern Ghanaian and also an awful lot of African tradition. Kwame Sasa is an expert maker of Asafo flags. He lives in Komanse, in Ghana's central coastal region. He felt called to become a flag maker after visiting one of Ghana's best-loved national parks, Kakum, which is in the south. Kwame, speaking to me on a difficult link from Ghana, told me that when he got home, he was determined to start a new life as a flag maker, and he found a flag master really close to his house. So I went to him and I told him, I want to learn how to make a flag. And he said, okay, I will teach you or I will let you know how to do it. But then before then, you have to give me an amount of 80 Ghana cities plus a bottle of snap and then a chicken. <laughs> and I said, okay, that is okay. You know, so that is how I started to make the flag. It took him six months to learn how to do it, and then a further six months before he felt confident. 
He works not just for one company, but for whichever company comes to him and asks for a new flag. Each company has its own colours and wants different stories told in the flag they're commissioning. For the colours, it depends on which company they are coming from. They will tell you which colours they want, but their motives, it will come from what they tell you to do for them. If, if they want you to do something for them, they will tell you, I want this kind of, uh, they will give you the, the, the story or probably the proven, and you will come out with the, you know, what to do with it. But actually the colors, if they are number one, you don't add white, you don't bring in major white in the number one because number one is purely red and black. And if they are number two, you don't bring in black and red because it's purely black, it's purely white and blue for number two. So the number one, number two, number three companies or number four companies, it determines by what colors they actually use primarily for their flags. Otherwise, you don't mix the colors. If they are from number one, you ask them and they tell you, we don't like a white in our flag, we don't like a black in our flag. Each flag can take up to a month to make. One of Kwame's favorite ones shows a snail, a tortoise, a man, and a broken gun. If you see a tortoise, you can easily pick it up. It's easy to pick a tortoise in the forest. Or if it is a snail, you can easily pick a snail without shooting, shooting it. So if somebody tells you, I want something to do with peaceful coexistence, then you have to come in with a snail and a tortoise, and they say, let alone these two animals in the forest, there won't be any gunshots. This one is easy because you only have to bring in the tortoise. You put in the tortoise and the snail and the gun, but then there won't be. It's a broken gun. So if it, if, if if that is what it, that is how you do your flag, depending on the, the the story. There are also a lot of flags with sailing ships on, and these have a less happy history. They tend to be reminders of the slave trade that was carried on for centuries along this coast. Other flags show whales as the big, powerful beast of the sea and much admired by these fishing communities. Turtles, which mean moving in silence. Eagles, which express power and control. And lions with castles. Each flag represents the flag maker's personal representation of the message or proverb. Kwame regrets that more younger men aren't taking up flag making, and he's concerned that this tradition will have no future unless a conscious effort is made to save it. An incredible piece of Ghana's history and culture is in danger of being lost if the makers aren't replaced. It has been part of our culture. It's a very powerful way of communicating with the other communities. In the olden days, we don't have the military as such, but what we have is the Asafo. It's also like a, a paramilitary. And this is what they use when going to war, or it's also a question of when people die. If you are a member of a, a, a company, they use it. But the Asafo flag, says a lot. It's a way of communicating with, with each other. So to me, it's a very powerful thing and uh, it's very beautiful. 
But one of the interesting things about Asafo flags is that while they may be in danger of falling into history amongst the Fante people themselves, outside Ghana they're now going through another transformation. The Ghanaian diaspora and the African diaspora more generally value them as art. Here's Barbara Eisen, who lives in London. She sells Asafo flags and works with the makers in Ghana to create new flags to sell to an international audience. The reaction is always a wow. That's the first thing. Reaction is always wow. And then they do their research because they want to know what this um, colourful flag is. And then they come back and they say, wow, I'd really like one. The majority of people that sort of buy them are... I'd say interior designers, um, collectors as well. Quite a lot of people that just want to collect um, just for the history of it. Ship all around the world. So America, Japan. Yeah, is is the, the interest sort of varies. But I think a lot of people want new um, artwork in their homes and they want something that's quite meaningful. Also want a statement piece. So it's a unique applique art that people want. Barbara says that there are Asafo flags in the collections of the Smithsonian, the British Museum and in Canadian museums, and that the price of the older vintage flags has rocketed. Some of them sort of run into the thousands because they're quite rare now. Um, So working with the flag makers now to make new ones as opposed to just, you know, everybody scrambling for sort of old, old art. I'm sort of working with the flag makers that are currently there to produce new ones. So, yeah, I don't think that the tradition would fade as such. For some reason, I think it's, it's probably going to come back in, 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 a, in, a, in a different way, not so much uh, in a sort of traditional way, but as more, it'll be more, I'd say, represented and respected within Ghana. And I think it is, it is sort of respected in, in sort of outside of Ghana. A lot of people know about it more outside of Ghana than within Ghana. She travels to Ghana regularly and talks to a variety of flag makers. Her work is not just about selling flags, but also about celebrating the makers as artists. She believes that awareness of the Asafo flags is spreading. I think now, because uh, most of the flag makers are of age, so most of them are sort of six, two of two of them are sort of like sixty plus. There's only one that's quite young that's doing it, who is a grandson of a prominent flag maker. Um, I think the um, awareness has been pretty amazing. So there's a lot of people that are um, sort of supporting and are interested in the flags, whether it be vintage or new. But currently now I'm sort of working on um, producing new flags for the the collector as they are replacing the old ones. Um, New flags are now coming to the market, but working directly with the flag makers, not, you know, sort of purchasing it at a... A tourist site will be good to sort of um, work directly with them to produce new flags with new designs. She also says that traditions in Ghana are changing and that women are beginning to find a role in making Asafo flags. It's quite interesting that when I met a flag maker back in March, this year actually, and the wife was there, the wife was helping out the, the husband with the work. 
um, they do get involved, but they don't do they don't make a whole flag by themselves. Um, they sort of help out with the materials, the measurements, the cutting. Um, another flag maker did say that a woman actually does it by herself. I haven't met her yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping to meet her soon. Over time, Barbara has made links with a number of flag makers. Her work means that even though she's encouraging the makers to come up with new designs and she's selling their work internationally, the flags remain deeply connected to the context in which they were first created. Barbara's interest comes out of her own knowledge and her own heritage. I've always been interested in old things. So old textiles, art. Um, old vintage photos and postcards. I've been collecting them for a number of years. Um, and I actually came across a flag on a trip as a Ghana about 10 years ago with family. And I was intrigued by sort of the odd looking Union Jack because some of them have different types of Union Jack designs on a corner. This one was quite odd looking. So I was like, oh, okay, this is a bit weird. Because um, I didn't really look into... Um, the history of Ghana before beforehand, I just after just everything was the the red, um, gold and, and green with the star. So I I didn't really look into that. Some of them had different sort of flags, like the Saint George's Cross, um, and then some of them had the Dutch flag on them. Um, so when I got back to the UK, I'd done further research into the textile and even so more my heritage. Um, and I realized that the, the tradition was actually quite close to my father's side of the family. And it's the same story for Gus Casely Hayford, who grew up as a London boy. My father um, was Ghanaian and my mother Sierra Leonean, but we grew up in South London and Africa in my youth, it seemed like a million miles away, you know, not like, another part of the world, but almost a sort of an impossible dream, you know, a sort of place of fiction. And and so as soon as I um, was able, when um, uh, in my late teens, I travelled and um, I wanted to see this place that my parents had talked about, that my aunts who, when they came to visit, wearing gorgeous cloth and with amazing baskets full of delicious fruit and foods that I'd never experienced or could never could not buy in, in, in London at that time. And they also came with amazing stories. And these stories were so often they were illustrated by pieces of cloth that they would spin these gorgeous narratives about West Africa through the cloth and through their use and through their histories. And I wanted to see this place. If Gus's aunties achieved nothing else, they sparked curiosity in him to explore this heritage. And as soon as he was able to, he took himself off on a shoestring to West Africa. And on my very first trip to Ghana, that um, I went to a place called Cape Coast, which is on the coast, as the name would suggest, but in a region which is is uh, is is Fanti, and the Fanti are one of the smaller ethnic groups within within Ghana, but they have a very very expressive material culture, and one of the ways in which they are extremely good at 
telling their stories is through cloth, particularly flags. And um, it was there that I first saw one of these Asafo flags, which was sewn to me by an old an old uncle who sort of unraveled one of these cloths after taking it out of a drawer and then began to weave these incredible stories around and through the narrative of this incredible piece of cloth. And it was this sense of understanding how cloth could not, it's not just an object that had a utility, but it could be a kind of window onto history, a sort of window onto all kinds of narrative possibilities that could link people to place across time, to mythologies, that it could be an anchor for communities that might tie them to, you know, to great sorts of myths or stories that were fantastical. But it was always a way of drawing people together. And it was something that absolutely got into my blood. Gus now has his own small collection of Asafo flags. And because of his role as a museum director, he's also in a position to influence the way in which they are seen and valued globally. So while in Ghana they're in danger of becoming a remnant of history as the flag makers themselves age and are not replaced, there is a new sense of energy and purpose that is just beginning to flow back into the making of Asafo flags. This time it is not coming from inside Ghana, but from the diaspora, who are spreading the word of their existence and history. I find this a wonderful example of how textiles change through time, how different cultures alter the way they're used and made, fitting the needs of each succeeding generation. These flags began life as ships' flags on European ships. They were then repurposed as the extraordinary Asafo flags, expressing the heart of what it means to be from Ghana's coastal communities. And now they're changing again into art and decoration for a new generation outside Ghana, who value the skills and stories behind these flags as emblems of African art and identity. Gus says the flags are glorious things to live with, although he believes there's no substitute for seeing them on their home ground. There is something special about the visual language. There is something particular about when you see them flying, about the way in which they work together, particularly against those amazing settings that these these coastlines are incredibly, incredibly geographically dramatic. And you understand how this is a tradition which is not just about a graphic. It's about understanding something which is far more kind of intellectually resonant, which casts these flags, I think, for me, into the realms of... of you know, of great art rather than just something that could be considered to be a trade that you would pass down, that you would just learn one generation over another, but you could replicate by copying. That this is something in which there is huge invention, huge, huge thought and consideration and imagination. And 
the great flag makers, that they produce things which are on a par with, you know, the great art of, of, of any continent. So if you get the chance to see them, they are glorious things. But if you get the chance to see them flying, to see them being, to being um, actually kind of danced with drums, it's a sight to behold. And I would imagine if you're impacted in the way that I was on the very first time that I saw one of these, it will be something that you won't forget. Thanks to one of Ghana's dwindling band of master Asafo flag makers, Kwame Sasa, to Gus Casely Hayford, and to Barbara Eisen for sharing their own stories of how Asafo flags came into their lives. I've posted some pictures of these beautiful flags on the website and of Kwame creating them. You can find them at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen, where you will also find a full script of this podcast and a form which gives you a chance to win the textile-related gifts I give away with each episode. If you want to see more, Barbara also has some vintage flags in her Etsy shop, which is called simply Asafo Flags. Before I go, I wanted to thank all of you who have bought me a coffee. The response to this slightly hesitant request on my part has been tremendous, and I'm extremely grateful. The funds, more than £450 worth, will be used to meet the costs of getting the next series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles on air in the autumn. I hope you'll all feel that it's worth it. There is, however, one more episode to go in this series. In that, we will be thinking about a feeling of nostalgia, how textiles hold memories and how the sight of them years later can bring back long-forgotten feelings. I'll leave you this time with work from a man who I'm delighted to call a friend. The Ghanaian poet Akwasi Aidu has just published his first collection of poetry called Rhythms of Dignity. Here he reads one of his works from that book. It's called Query. Query. We are a developing country, you say, that we need time to mature, unity to develop, discipline to compete. Hmm. When we have time, unity and discipline, and before we mature, develop and compete, can we dance? dream and struggle? Can we resist your folly with justice? Can we?